I want to read verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. There are two indispensable ingredients or qualities for success in any sport, I guess in any endeavor really. Good, a good teacher and a winning tradition. You need a good teacher to um, give you the fundamentals of how to do it and how to get it, get it done and bring that stuff in that enables you to be better than you are now. You need a good teacher. And you need a winning tradition. That is, there needs to be others who have run the race or at least run a race similar to yours and have won. You remember the four-minute mile barrier? Um, from the time of the ancient Greeks, people tried to, to uh, break the four-minute mile. Folklore has it that they would take these runners out and put them on the road and give them a head start and they'd turn lions loose to chase them. That would certainly cause me to pick up the pace, I'll promise you that for sure. And when that didn't work, they fed them tiger's milk. And when that didn't work, they assumed that the four-minute mile was a barrier unbreakable. And for a thousand years, they determined that the body structure of man and his uh, lung incapacity was such that he would never break the four-minute mile. Too much wind resistance. And then in the middle of the 1950s, a man by the name of Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. I was watching the day he did it, believe it or not. I was at my cousin's house watching on a black and white television when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile barrier. A year after he broke the four-minute mile barrier, 37 people broke it. And a year after that, 300 people broke it. Now what happened all of a sudden? Was it that the bone structure suddenly changed or man got, suddenly got more uh, wind capacity? Of course not. They got a different attitude. Because one man broke it, the basic bottom line assumption was, if you can do it, I can do it. Now when it comes to the running of the race, the Christian race, this race, this life, living this life, we have these two benefits we have the superior teacher. In fact, the book of Hebrews' theme is the superiority of Christ. It starts out uh, exposing and expounding on the fact 
that Jesus is superior to angels, superior to the law, superior to Moses, and superior to Judaism. And comes to the conclusion that since we have one who is superior, we need to go from milk to meat. We need to go on to the, beyond the basic rudiments, the basic fundamentals, because we have the good teacher. And he includes us in the conversation. He, he, it is as if he were speaking to us like the ink was still wet on the parchment. You and I have the best instruction. And we have winning tradition. He said we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, we don't use that term, uh, you know, today. Uh, probably you would say we are surrounded, we are observed by former participants. I was talking to an, an Aggie last Friday night. I mean, he'd been out of, he's been out of college for years, but you don't ever, there's no ex-Aggies. You know that, don't you? They're former students, you know. And I said, I introduced him as a Richard Strop. This is an ex-Aggie. He said, no, there's no ex-Aggies. No ex-Aggies. Just former students. So this is a former participant. These are former participants. These are people who have, who have participated in what you're participating in tonight, in this life. And they observe us. It was 1798 when Napoleon stood beside the pyramids and addressed the victorious French army. They had begun a campaign in Alexandria and had marched across Egypt in one sweeping movement of victory. And this is what he shouted, Soldiers of France, 40 centuries look down upon us today. Well, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying that there is this Great cloud of witnesses, these former participants, these people who have run the race, and they have literally encompassed means, and they are bending down to watch every move you make. Invariably, the question then comes, you know, does that mean that the people in heaven know what we're doing down here? I mean, is my dad, is he observing me? My mom, my spouse? Invariably, that's the question. Invariably, the answer is, Probably so. I mean, they may be in this great cloud of witnesses, these former participants. That leads to the second invariable question. Well, doesn't it make them sad when they see me mess up? You know, when they see my problem? Not really. The invariable answer is they have perfect knowledge. They know as God knows. They see the end from the beginning and the beginning in light of the end. I was watching just for a minute this afternoon in case Billy Graham came on and prayed. I was watching a ball game. I mean, you never know. <laughs> I don't believe in watching television on Sunday, but I do keep it on in case Billy Graham prays at half. And, and I was watching for Billy Graham and, uh, and, they, and, uh, and the Eagles were marching on the, in the, on, the Eagle, on the Redskins right at the end of the game. I mean, the Redskins had them beaten. And the Eagles were marching on them and they were like 13 seconds left to play and, the, and uh, Cunningham rifled that pass into the end zone. He caught it for a touchdown. Now, you're watching the film tomorrow, that game. This is what you're thinking. Don't worry about that sack, Milt. Don't worry about that sack, Cunningham. I know how it's going to come out, you know. Don't worry about that 
15-yard penalty at a crucial time in the game, just, just remember this. Right at the end of the game, you're going to throw the game-winning touchdown. Everything's going to be okay. So these people are looking down upon you tonight, those who have run the race, those you love, those former participants, and they're bending down to observe you, and they're cheering you on and me on because they know how this thing's going to come out. And that is the winning tradition, and that is, and those are, the cloud, this is the cloud of witnesses. Now the question is, who, you know, who makes up this cloud? So I want you to turn back to chapter 11. We're going to identify some of them who are watching you tonight. You believe this? Can you take this literally? Well, I, I think we ought to take this literally, so we're going to find out who's watching us. You know, I'm just going to pick out a few of them and you know, just go, we'll, we'll look at verse uh, 5. By faith, Enoch, chapter 11, was taken up that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I guess his epitaph would read, he pleased God. Verse 6 says that he pleased God because he had faith. So we could put on the bottom kind of a subtitle of his epitaph, he pleased God. He was a man of faith. He's watching you tonight, is Enoch. And then there is in verse 7, there's Noah being warned by God about these things not yet seen. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I guess his epithet would be something practical like his boat floated. <laughs> now that doesn't sound too exciting except there, never was, there wasn't such a thing as a boat. In fact, there never was such a thing as water. As we know water now, falling from heaven in raindrops, the, the earth was was watered by the dew in the morning and the moisture in the evening. Wasn't any such thing as a flood or a boat. There's another man here, Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he went, put on his epitaph, he marched off the map. That's Halpert Luckett's uh, title that. And then there's uh, Sarah in verse 8, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised and the faithful, this is her epitaph, and the faithful became fruitful. And if you skip down to verse 25, there's Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. His epitaph would read, he saw what nobody else had ever seen. And if you want to skip down to verse 37 and 38, you'll see the rest of it. And they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They're watching us tonight. And they were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They, they, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Is this a, is this a tradition, a traditional group of winners? Is this a former cloud of witnesses, is this worthy for motivation? I tell you, yes. I mean, what have I got? I mean, what kind of a race problem do I have? See? 
Well, before the race, there's some preparation that needs to be done, and that's what he describes for us here. He said there are a couple of things, practical points to follow in, in this, this race. First of, first of all, he said you need to lay aside every encumbrance, strip from us every encumbrance. The word means unnecessary weight. It's not, um, he's not talking about sinful stuff. He, he's talking about stressful stuff. He's not talking about sinful stuff. He's talking about stressful stuff. He's talking about, you know, in running this race, somewhere down the line, you're going to have to determine priorities and put those things which are most important under the category entitled most important stuff. And all the rest you strip from your life. Now you say, well, can you be more practical? Well, I think so. Number one, the pressure to perform to prove something. The pressure to perform to prove something. And so we work night and day, day and night. When we're not working, we're thinking about it to prove something. Successful, be successful. Distractions, public opinion, lay it aside. What they think, whoever they are, we're driven by the paralyzing question, what will they think? Put that aside. It doesn't matter what they think. Religious routine that leads to legalism. Church-related activities that cause us to feel spiritual until we burn out. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe getting out a little thin eyes here, but talking about the activities that is, you know, at the BSU, wonderful organization of BSU. The, the danger of this is, is that we, we take so many religious responsibilities, literally we burn out, it becomes legalism. We lay aside every encumbrance. That is, we decide those things which are absolutely necessary. Second, he said we put aside the sin that entangles us. It's an entangling, has an entangling effect. And the word sin here means the subtle destructiveness, the kind that slips into your life and has you before you realize it, without you even being aware of it. That's the sin he refers to here. Um, when you went to the, when y'all went to Niagara Falls, you see that sign that said point of no return? Did y'all see that sign? Point of no return. Somebody said one day he was talking, standing there by that sign, and he saw one of those rangers there, and he said, uh, "You know, this is exactly. Would you kind of tell me what that sign, exactly what that sign means?" The guy said, "Well, we have determined, as best we can determine, that if you enter the water here, or anywhere beyond this point, you'll go over the falls." Whatever reason you enter the water from this point on, you'll go over the falls. The kind of sin that he's talking about here is, watch this, young people, is the sin that entraps you and entangles you and you're not even aware of it. And before you are even conscious of it, it's too late. It might start out with sensual uh, stimulation of sensual desire before long you're trapped. It might start out with a, you, know, just, you know, one social drink before you know it, you're trapped. Beyond this point, there's no return. 
Lay aside that sin. Put your finger on it, whether it's drugs or sex or the desire for wealth and power. Put your finger on it and strip it from your life. Now, what is this? Maybe some examples of it. Well, he gives us some examples. One is the sin of unbelief in the context. It's the tendency to handle things our way rather than trusting God. It's, you know, the, it's, it's the opposite of the walk of faith. It's, it's, you know, I want so badly to know for certainty where I'm going and what I'm going to do. I've got my five-year plan. It's a sin of unbelief or sexual impurity or financial impropriety. But don't be talked into treating sin as anything but sin. Now, he said, when you decide that you're ready to lay aside the encumbrances and the sin that entangles you, now the race. What about the race? He tells us something about it. He tells us that it's long and requires endurance, and perseverance, like somebody has in their book, uh, a long obedience in the same direction. It requires perseverance and and persistence. And, and the race is won this way. First, by focusing on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the completion, the finisher of the race. By looking unto Jesus. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who will take you home. Now, it's easy for somebody to um, stand in a pulpit and talk about keeping your eyes on Jesus. I've heard that so many times. It's almost uh, mundane and sickening. Well, what does that mean, keeping, you know, keep your eyes on Jesus? Sounds good, keep your eyes on Jesus. What does that mean, keep your eyes on Jesus? Really, it's a reference to a preoccupying sense of Jesus Christ a preoccupying sense of Jesus Christ. Now, whatever can be done so that there can be a preoccupation or a preoccupying sense of Jesus, that's what he's talking about. It may mean um, that you develop a prayer habit. It may mean that you develop some kind of study of God's Word on a consistent daily basis, preoccupying with Christ, preoccupation with Christ means Christ-centeredness. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted by your difficulties. The second thing he says that is essential is that you consider him. Consider him. Look at it in verse uh, 3. Who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. What he's saying is that when you when you consider carefully and compare yourselves to what he has endured, what he has been through, his bitter attacks and hostility, when you see what he went through, it gives you courage. To keep in mind that whatever, however we are rejected and whatever people say about us could never compare what they said about him. And whatever people do to us, as far as uh, a Christian would endure whatever comes, could never compare what he went through. We gain courage from it. Now, if you'll turn back quickly, I'm going to finish this up with a, you know, I was just looking at this and I, and I think that 
that the that the key to this, what I'm, what, I, what I've just said, is is found in the eighth chapter of the book of Mark. The eighth chapter of the book of Mark, and verse thirty-four. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It seems to me that what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12 is summed up in what Jesus said when he called his disciples. Four things, if any man will come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let me look at those four things right quickly. If he'll come after me. There's a kind of a teaching that's called peripatetic teaching. Some of you may be familiar with it who are, who are educators. Peripatetic teaching is the teaching that Jesus did. And the way he taught peripatetic teaching is that a man just walked around, Socrates did this, he just walked around talking and folks followed him around listening. And so he just walked around in the, in the streets in the marketplace and while he was talking, you know, just speaking, teaching, these guys were walking around with him listening to him and they were, peripateo is, is the word of the Greek. That's what Jesus is saying. If any man will just Come around me, just follow around with me, listen to me, let me talk, let me speak, let me, let me share. The word also means to, like a lover coming hard after the one he loves. Now some of you know what that means. I heard a speaker, a preacher tell about he was speaking at a, at a conference and he said that before he spoke there was a young girl uh, who gave her testimony. She was of this, of a, of a group of, uh, uh, you know, not non-Baptists, but they, they sent missionaries out, and they sent her out as a missionary to, to Afghanistan. And while she was out as in, the, in, in Afghanistan as this missionary, she fell in love with a, with a young man who was there as a missionary from another part of the country, and he asked her to marry him. And she said, well, I can't ask, I can't tell you, I can't give you an answer until I talk to the elders of the church. And she said, she's given her testimony, she said, I came back to the elders and I talked to the elders of the church about whether or not I could marry this man because I, I was sent out by the elders and they'd have to give me permission. He said after he spoke, he looked the girl up and he said, boy, I'm telling you what, I, 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 was, I was thrilled by what you said. And I said, uh, I started not to even preach. He said, I just want you to know, honey, you had them in the palm of your hand. He said, I was looking around. He said, everybody was just hanging on every word. He said, well, there's a guy sitting in front of me just sitting there with his mouth open, just, just taking in everything you were saying. She said, that's him. <laughs> and he said, that's who? Well, she said, that's the boy, that man that asked me to marry him. And when I told him that I was coming back to ask the elders, talk to the elders. He said, well, I'll go talk to the elders too. And he said, he got on the same flight I did and he's coming, he came back to speak to the elders and they're going, we're going to meet tonight with the elders and we're going to find out what's, what goes. It's a lover following hard after the loved. 
And God said, you'll find me if you seek me with your whole heart. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Now he didn't say deny things for himself or deny himself things. Deny himself. You know what that means? It means that whenever your will and the will of God comes into conflict, it's his will. It means that you make a commitment, once and for all commitment, that whatever, whenever it comes to a time when what you want comes into conflict with what he wants, it's what he wants. It's kind of like getting married. Listen up. Oh, here. I didn't know what I was getting into when I got married. Somebody asked Margaret, would you, if you had to do over again, would you marry Gerald? She said, like he was or like he is? I don't know. <laughs> I not know what I was getting into when I got married. But I did, I, I, I did know this, and I was making a commitment to give my life away. And when there was a conflict, a clash of conflict, where it was, where there was a, a, a clash of wills in this thing that, that I need to understand that, that it was not just me any longer. Deny himself. Take up his cross. You know what that means? I've heard people say when, you know, well, uh, you know, if something bad happens to him, say, well, you know, with a kind of a twist of the head, well, I guess that's my cross. Or you got somebody you don't like, you know, well, you know, I guess that's my cross I got to bear. It's not, the cross, listen to me, the cross is not suffering the consequences for your bad choices. It's not, it's not suffering the things that come in life. When he said, take up your cross, what Jesus meant by that was that when he took the cross up, he was identifying with the eternal purpose of God for his life. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and identify with the eternal purpose of God for his life. It's God's will for me from now on. And when I'm running this race and I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus, that's what it means, that my race, I'm run this race with the eternal purpose of God for my life from now on. When that's the case, you don't have a right to decide, young people, where you're going to college or who you're going to marry. When that's the case, you and I don't have a right to decide what vocation we're going to enter, where we're going to live, how we're going to make a living. It's the eternal purpose of God that matters. Jesus did when he, when he came here was he gathered a little group of disciples around him and the last thing he did was gather that, the survivors of that little group around him to determine who really meant it when they said, I'm in the race. Now there are two conclusions you and I need to make and this is it. You will one day be exalted and honored. You will one day be exalted and honored. When Jesus finished the race, he took the place of exaltation. And so the Apostle Paul got with his young Timothy and said, I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me, but not to me only, but to everybody who has loved everything about Jesus. Oh man, I love that. You will be exalted. At the end of this race, you will be crowned. Second, you will not grow weary or lose heart as you consider the race that Jesus has run. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of this word, your word, and I pray you'll bless the decision that it would be honest and truthful that we would make tonight for Jesus' sake. It's in his name I pray. There are three invitations. An invitation for you to give your heart to Christ tonight. Jesus said, come after me. Get up, and, get up and begin to follow Christ tonight. Get up out of your seat and begin to follow Jesus. Make a commitment. Give your life to Christ. To join our church. To recommit yourself to pur the purpose of his eternal plan. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come. <laughs>